Question for you off the top, considering it's Christmas, do you prefer to wrap or open Christmas gifts? Prefer wrapping them or opening them? Now, I wrapped this one myself, believe it or not. I, uh, in fact, used to really enjoy wrapping Christmas gifts, although I would divide it into BK and AK, before kids and after kids. Before kids, I used to spend weeks leading up to Christmas wrapping each one of the gifts like this, and not only that, but I made uh, custom Christmas cards for every member of my immediate family, and in fact, for some of our dearest friends. So it would take me weeks. Like, literally, I'm talking, I'd make them out of Bristol board with multiple layers. Sometimes you'd open them, and something would pop up, all handmade, and in fact, they were kind of like the present. I would put them in your um, stocking, and some of my family still have them to this day. That was before kids. After kids, not so much. In fact, after kids, I discovered that magical place at the mall where you show up, and they wrap the presents for you. Now, you know that you give a donation and they wrap the presents for you. You'll notice over the last several years, it's no longer just a donation, but there's like a suggested amount of $5 per gift. That's my fault. Because the first time I showed up with 20 gifts, they looked at me like I was insane. Right? I was like, this is the best deal ever. Here's 20 bucks. Here's 20 gifts. Go for it. Right? So I don't, I don't wrap presents really anymore. In fact, yesterday, as I sat down to wrap my sermon illustration, I felt a little bit nostalgic, missing the days before kids when I had time and something called energy. My kids love Christmas. They love getting Christmas presents. It's kind of nice, though. They're getting old enough now, so they're not quite as intense about Christmas presents as they were when they were younger. Maybe you remember being younger yourself and being so fixated on Christmas morning. I remember, I think it was probably five before we moved to Israel. We moved there when I was six and a half. So we lived in Newmarket before that. It must have been five, five and a half years of age when I snuck down that first Christmas Eve to peek around the banister to see my parents laying the gifts under the tree. And it was kind of a double-edged sword because I realized in that moment that I was, in fact, getting the cross-country skis that I'd been hoping for for months. But then I also realized that Santa wasn't real because my dad was the one placing the skis under the tree. As a kid, you can remember being really excited for Christmas morning, and maybe you remember asking your parents why we give each other Christmas gifts. It can be your kids asking you that if you have children that first time when they ask you, Dad, why do we give gifts at Christmas? And of course, it's a great opportunity for you as they age to tell them why, to say, look, we give gifts at Christmas because of Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate Christmas gift. He's the greatest gift of all. But as I thought on that this year, I realized that Maybe that isn't quite right. Maybe Jesus is more than just a gift. That is if John 1, 1 through 18 is to believe. See if you can spot it as we read it through. This is one of the epic chapters in all of Scripture. Again, it's got to be top ten. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave and believed in his name. He gave them the rights to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
famous, famous part here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Man, I love this chapter. I was so excited on Friday, I get to preach it again. I was like, people ask me on Sunday, how are you doing, Pastor Todd? I say, I'm great. I'm great, because I know what's coming, and I'm pretty excited about it. John chapter 1. We're introducing Jesus to you this season. Who is Jesus? To help us this morning, I've broken John 1, 1 through 18, into three sections. Okay, first section comprising verses 1 through 5, is all about the Logos. So if you're a note-taker, you write that down. Section 1, all about the Logos, L-O-G-O-S, verses 1 through 5. Section 2 is all about us, okay? All about us, verses 6 through 13. Section 3 is all about Christmas, or if you really want to be fancy and theological-like, you can say it's all about the Incarnation, and that's verses 14 through 18. Three sections. And I think that you'll see by the end that Jesus is more than just the greatest gift of Christmas. Let's jump into it. Here's section one. Who is Jesus? We see in verses one through five who he is. Who is Jesus? He is preexistent. We'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. He is God. He is master maker. He is life. He is light. He is victor. Consider verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right here, we're off the reservation immediately as compared to other world religions. Right away. Okay? First verse, we're off the reservation compared to other world religions. Why? Well, consider Muhammad from Islam. Muhammad was a prophet, a messenger, never claimed to be God. Buddha, of course, from Buddhism, never claimed to be God. He was a messenger, a philosopher, a sage, a spiritual teacher, never claims to be God. In Hinduism, of course, there is no singular revelation of God. Depending on the branch of Hinduism you're studying, they might tell you there's three revelations of God. Others would expand it and say there are 33 revelations of God. Others would expand it yet again and say, no, there are 33 million revelations of God. Very different from Christianity. Of course, the religion of our age, secular humanism, tells you that you are God. I may not use those words, but it will teach you without equivocation that you are the apex of the universe. You are the ultimate expression of goodness in all creation. This one, of course, is the easiest to disprove. I'll just wait until one of you burps. All right? Of course, you could pick any other example you want that illustrates the humanity of humans. Jesus... He's something altogether different here. John says that Jesus is the pre-existent Logos, the pre-existent Word of God. He says that Jesus is God. So Jesus is a problem, right? You cannot follow Jesus as a religious teacher or as a sage because if he, not, if he was not who he said he was, if he was not in fact God, because Jesus without equivocation did claim equality with God, if that is not true, then he was nuts, He's crazy, and who wants to follow a crazy person, right? Because you'd be crazy to say you were one with God if you weren't one with God. 
unequivocally, he says, he who has seen me, she who has seen me has seen the Father. He was in the beginning with God. Now let me pause here. Say you're in church this morning and you're like, I don't understand any of this. This is way over my head. I just want to say welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Feel at home. This is for you. God help me. We get to a point in the life of this church when there are no non-Christians in the service. Okay, so thank God you're here. And here's how this works with Jesus. Okay, as you come to Jesus, you'll be like, this feels really good, but I don't understand it. Right? I like this, but I don't really get it. This feels really good, but I don't really understand it. Okay, if that's how you've been feeling, I just want to say it's normal. Totally normal. Everybody goes through it. And so you keep going through it and keep going through it. Sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years before it clicks and you go, this feels really good, and now I know why. Now I understand it. So just give yourself time, okay? Give yourself permission to kind of ease your way in, to keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good until that day comes when it clicks and you go, aha, I get it now. All right? So that's my commercial for you. Love you. So glad you're here. Feel at home. If you don't understand all of this, don't worry. The day will come when you will. And why do I know that for sure? Because you wouldn't have come to church unless God has set his grace on you. Right? Nobody in their right mind is going to go to church. You're like, why would you bother in this secular humanist world? Like, seriously, I need to be at the mall right now. Okay? But you're here. Why? Because God has set his grace on you. So trust him. He will see you through. Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. She who has seen me has seen the Father. He was, verse 2, in the beginning with God. The picture here is of truly the Father and the Son in each other's bosom. Okay, bosom, in each other's bosom. So close that it's hard to distinguish the one from the other. They are in one another's bosom. And John didn't get this idea out of nowhere. A little later in John's Gospel, I think it's in chapter 14. Let me check. Yeah, 14 verse 9. That's where Jesus says in John's Gospel, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus himself is testifying to this oneness that exists between his Father and himself. What does this mean for you? This togetherness that we see at the center of the Godhead. Well, it means that togetherness is at the very heart of the universe. And that means this for you. If togetherness exists at the very heart of the universe, it should exist for you. So that may help you if you have to go to like one of those difficult extended family Christmases this year. And it's not easy and your cousin is a jerk and you and your brother haven't talked in months. I don't know. Nobody's family's perfect. Everybody has some dysfunction to deal with. So as you go into that situation this Christmas... Don't feel awkward. Remember the togetherness that exists at the heart of who God is. And know that because togetherness exists at the heart of the universe, it should exist for you as well. So embrace it. Search it out. Step into it, even if you don't feel like it, even if you don't feel 100% ready. Okay, Because the togetherness that exists in the universe doesn't hinge on you. It hinges on God. What else does it mean for you that the Father and the Son are in each other's Bosom. Well, it means that Jesus really is God. This is one of the central questions that Christians ask themselves. Can I really trust Jesus? Is he really God? Is he not some Superman? Is he not some ultimate human? How do I really know if he's God? Okay, you really know he's God because 
John testifies to, remember that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are firsthand eyewitnesses' accounts of men who followed Jesus closely, who heard his actual words and claims about himself. And so John heard Jesus say that he and the Father were one, which is why John begins his gospel testifying to the fact that the Father and the Son are one. So Jesus really is God. Why does this matter? It means you can really trust him. You see? If he's really God, you can really trust him. If he's really God, he is really worthy of your trust and devotion. So you can really go all in on Jesus this Christmas. Maybe you've been holding back. Are you a hedge your bets kind of person? I know lots of us are. Some people are a little more prone to jumping in with both feet. I'm one of those people. Right? I'm out sailing in the spring, and the lake is cold, and I'm like, let's see how cold. Step, step, woo! I hit the water, and it's like, help me, Jesus. Like, it's, I get out like, it's amazing. I levitate out of the water back onto the boat. Right? I'm a jump in with both feet kind of person, but not everybody's wired that way, and if that's you, it's okay. But I want to tell you, you can trust Jesus. So go all in with Jesus this year. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the master maker. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and with... Out him, nothing was made that was made. This powerful. But just sit with that for a second. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. This is very heavy duty. Okay, so in the beginning, what does God do? He speaks. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. So John is telling us that the speaking of God is the spoken word of God. It's the logos of God. So as God creates, he creates through the agency of the logos. The logos speaks everything into being. So this means that everything that exists was ultimately spoken into being by the word of God, the logos. This heavy duty, all things were made through him. And like to double down, without him, nothing was made that was made. Even my kids know how heavy duty this really is. I will never forget my young son, Sam, six years of age, sitting in our hot tub, says to me, we're reflecting on this. It was Christmas time. We're reflecting on the incarnation. Yes, that's what you do when you're a pastor. You reflect on the incarnation with your children. That is what you do when you're a Christian person. You reflect on the incarnation with your children. And they say to you, Dad, are you saying that God invented tanks? Kids have this way of cutting right to the chase. Well, yes, son. God's creative genius lies at the heart of the creative genius that was deployed to create tanks. But, Dad, tanks kill people. Yes, they do. Sometimes they kill bad people. Well, what about sex then, Dad? The conversations get more interesting as they get older. <laughs> yeah, that was God's idea too. Really? Yeah. So it's good. Yes, it is. Really? Cool. When can I try it? Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Eventually, though, sex is God's idea. If your kids are like teenagers and they're watching Breaking Bad, they'll be like, what about methamphetamine? (laughs) Machine guns? (laughs) Like, well, let's talk about chemistry. Right? Let's talk about the use of weapons throughout history. And let's hold those in tension with John 1.3. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. The point is this. God's creativity, hear this, lies at the heart of all creativity. Okay? And he made us like him to be co-creators with him. 
His command to Adam and Eve is what? Be fruitful and multiply, create life, fill the earth, and subdue it. So he's telling them he made them like him to be like him. We are co-creators, and he made us free. What is the purpose of freedom? The purpose of freedom is joy. How do I know? Because you could not love God if you had to. Am I right? You could not love God if you were forced to. So God made you free so that one day you might choose to love him and in that choosing find the great joy that is the harbor of your soul's longing. And I'm quoting Guy Gabriel Kay there with that sentence. Give credit where credit is due. That joy is the harbor of your soul's longing and that joy comes as a consequence of freedom. But we took freedom and we used it to rebel. You may know the story from the Garden of Eden. God makes Adam and Eve, makes them free, says, have your freedom in this garden. Leave that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil alone. Don't even touch it, for in the day that you touch it, you will surely die. You may have heard the story. The devil comes in and tempts them, sows the first seeds of doubt in their mind. Says, you know, I surely die. But God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will become like him, knowing good and evil, insidiously sowing that seed of envy in the heart of humankind. Don't you want to be like God? He's holding back on you. And so Adam and Eve choose to sin. They take their freedom and they use it to rebel against God. And in that moment, sin is now born in the heart of humanity. And as a result, everything is cursed. Everything falls. And everything is broken. And it remains broken. And the long, sad history of humanity will prove that to you. And perhaps the long, sad history of your own life has proven that to you. But the miracle of Christmas is this, that God did not leave us alone, but in the fullness of time, He sent His one and only begotten Son to become the man Jesus. To live a perfect and a sinless life, to fully fulfill the will of His Father, to one day go to a cross, so that as He hung there, the Father might place on Him the sins of us all, echoing the ceremonies of the Old Testament, when God's people would bring a goat before the priests, and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat, transferring symbolically the sins of the people onto the goat, and then that goat would be banished into the wilderness to die alone. And so to the Jewish audience, seeing this drama of Jesus Christ of Nazareth play out, they would have clearly understood the implications of one man claiming to die for the sins of the world. That's exactly what happened as Jesus hung there upon that cross. The Father placed upon him the chastisement for our peace, and he suffered and died the death that we all should have died because of our unrelenting sinfulness. And that God-man died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever, ascending to his Father's right hand, sitting down in glory where even now he's interceding for you, a place from whence he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. The miracle of Christmas is this powerful reminder that the Logos, who spoke everything into being, became the man Jesus who went to the cross to die for his creation. Your maker became your Messiah. This is the power and the glory and the beauty of Christmas. This is why it's still worth making a fuss over all these many years later. Your maker became your Messiah. The spoken word of God became the Lamb of God. What does this mean for you? Well, it means a couple things. 
The fact that all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. The fact that he went to the cross to die for the sins of the world means that you and I must never demonize anybody or anything as evil. Even Adolf Hitler? Yes, even Adolf Hitler. We must never say he was capital E evil. You're like, what? This is difficult theology. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. What Adolf Hitler did was evil. You see the fine line that exists between recognizing the evil that is loosed in the world as we bend God's freedom to rebel and the next step, which is to what? Demonize people as evil. Demonize things as altogether evil. You don't need me to tell you what's happened in history when men of the cloth have stood on stages and demonized certain people groups as evil. We all know what happened as a result. We are never, ever to do this. We must insist on seeing the fingerprints of our good God and creator in all things while acknowledging that all things fell and were broken because of our parents' original sin in Eden and because of our ongoing sinfulness. Which means this. We are to invite all those who will to come to the river to taste and see that the Lord is good. We are to never disqualify anyone right off the top as if we have the power of God to decide who's in and who's out. To decide who's a sheep and who's a goat. Never. We invite all those who will to come to the river. Everyone is invited. Everyone is welcome. Why? Verse 4. Because in him was life and that life was the light of all people. One of the most powerful and difficult verses in all of Scripture. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. Here we find the root of what I like to call Christian pluralism. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Why can I say Christian pluralism without shuddering? Well, because last time I checked, all means all. I didn't write this. Right? One of God's disciples did. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. All means all. The life of Jesus is the light of all people. All people. What does this mean for you? It means that all beauty, all goodness, all truth comes from and is rooted in God himself. Whether or not the person participating in that good thing acknowledges God as source or not is immaterial. Doesn't matter. It's difficult, right? You're like, well, I'm, you're freaking me out, Todd. What if a musician is playing a G chord over lyrics that don't glorify Jesus? You know what happens if someone is playing a G chord over lyrics that don't glorify Jesus? The G chord does it for them. The G chord does it for them. If these should keep silent, even these rocks would cry out. Jesus himself said this in Luke 19, 40. Is there great freedom in that? It does mean the death of the Christian music industry. It does mean the death of Christian publishing. It does mean the death of Christian art. Because there's ultimately no such thing. As if to say, in the art created by our ghetto, that's the only place the light dwells. Ridiculous. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. 
Even if your friends do not acknowledge the glory of God, the glory of God lives through their works regardless. What does this mean for you? A couple things. One, you should live with utmost confidence. Knowing that God owns everything, and ultimately everything will bow the knee to him one day. And there is no person who is God enough to bend a G chord to their will. Because the one who is God enough has already bent the G chord to his will, and you cannot supersede him, nor will you. So live with utmost confidence and with utmost charity. What does that mean? It means that you are to find the glory of God in every moment, regardless of whether or not you're the only one testifying to it, working with it every chance you get. Do you see? At work, at home, with your friends, with your family. As you're driving quickly past Stone Road Mall and not going in, you can drive with charity. I always have driving stories, okay? Light turns green, we go to drive through. Two cars drive through on the red, causing us to stop in the middle of the intersection. Then the guy in the truck who did it gives us the finger. I was like, help me, Jesus. In my flesh, I want to follow him and fight him. That's what I want to do. I'm going to go fight him and show him who's right and who's wrong. That's, what I want. That's how I'm wired, just so you understand. But because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, I drove on by. Charity. Charity. So I saw the glory of God in the person who invited, invented streetlights, and I saw the glory of God in the person who invented cars with good brakes. And I saw the glory of God in the Holy Spirit who calmed my angry heart. Why can you be confident and charitable? Because you know that ultimately God wins. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You ever been somewhere completely dark? It's not fun. We're almost never anywhere completely dark. Went spelunking one time with my youth group back when I was a youth pastor. Lord, help me. I was like, I'll never be a youth pastor again. It was fun, but I mean, for a time. And way down in those caves, we all turned off our flashlights, and that was completely dark. And then because I'm a pastor, I brought a little lighter. And I turned that lighter on. And just that one little light banished the darkness. You can have a lot of darkness, but all it takes is one light. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. What does this mean for you? This means that you should be living in a way that expects victory. Flip that switch this week. Start living in a way that expects victory. That would change my life. I want to be more like that. I want to live in greater expectation of victory and determined to be the light in every situation. Okay, let's talk about you for a minute. Section 2, contained in verses 6 through 13. I better read them for you real quick. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's talk about you for a minute. 
John the Baptist, he's the crucible for you. He's a person here. That's who the text is talking about. John the Baptist, JB, the baptizer, the forerunner, the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus himself said it in Matthew chapter 11, that of all the men born of women, none has arisen greater than John the Baptist. So if you want to be great, you got to be like JB. You want to be great, you got to do like JB did. What did John the Baptist do? He bore witness about the light. That is the pathway to greatness, to live a life that bears witness to the light. That's great, right? Because you could do that no matter what you happen to do in your life. You go to work tomorrow, you can bear witness about the light. You can testify about the light. And that witnessing about the light in your everyday life is what lifts it to the place of glory. It lifts it to the place of ministry. It lifts it so it becomes a tool to be used by the hand of God. Bear witness about the light if you want to be great. Because that's what John the Baptist did. He was a witness to what? To the true light which has come into the world, which does what? It enlightens everyone, again with the Christian pluralism. Do you see that there in the text? It's very important you see that. I didn't write it. I didn't make this up, right? The true light which has come into the world, which does what? It enlightens everyone. Everyone is enlightened by that same light. The point is this. All enlightenment is rooted in Jesus. So every time you see it, enjoy it. Every time you experience it, point it out. Even if you see it in someone distant, celebrate it. Okay, so when someone asks you, how come you're smiling? It's a pretty crappy day. Did you not see the traffic along Stone Road Mall? You're like, yeah, it was pretty bad, but I'm thankful that I have money to go buy a present for my wife. Jesus is good. They look at you weird, like, hmm? That's where the Christian witness part comes in. It's your friend. They know you're not strange. But they won't know that Jesus is the root of your happiness unless you testify to it. Am I right? I'm right. You don't get to be weird about it. You're going to say, and here's a tract. Mel will lead you to Jesus right now. No. 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 That's weird. Okay, that's weird. But your friends, they know you're not weird. They spend their life with you. How can you be so happy all the time? Because Jesus is good. Hallelujah. All right, let's keep eating. Hey, you're sowing a seed, though, man. You see enlightenment? Celebrate it. That true light that is with us. The light that came into the world as Emmanuel, with us, God. What's the point of this? What does this mean to us? It means that you are never alone. Okay, because the true light is with you. You're never alone. Neither, by the way, is anyone else unless they choose it. There's that freedom again. We're in some great mystery. God allows people to reject him. God allows people to do this to him for now. Right? And the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But no one needs to be alone unless they choose it. So when you meet someone broken this Christmas, you need to bear witness to the light and tell them that God is one surrendered prayer away. Be merciful to me, a sinner, O Lord. Jesus, help me. All it takes is one bended thought wherein we surrender to the God of the universe and His Spirit rushes in. Tell people that they don't need to be alone anymore. And make sure that you do not act like the people of verses 10 through 11. What were these people like? Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We don't want to be like those people. We don't want to be the people of God who do not receive God. 
The point for us is this this Christmas. Receive Jesus this Christmas. Receive him. Say, yes, Lord, there is room in my heart for you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and make me your own. Receive Jesus this Christmas and know that when you do, according to verse 12, you'll be given the right, the authority to become one of God's kids. Wouldn't that be the most, like, just pretend with me for a minute that you believe that God exists. Just humor me for one second. And then imagine if you could be his kid. You'd be in for the best Christmas of all time. I suspect you'd be getting something better than cross-country skis. When you let them in, you're given the right, the authority to become the children of God. What does this mean for you? Maybe you've already received Jesus. Then start acting like it. You've been given the right, the authority, to be a child of God. Start living like a rights holder. I read this morning that Fox paid $3 billion to re-up to get the rights to Thursday night football this last year. $3 billion for the rights to broadcast Thursday night football. So they are the rights holder. Now imagine that they held those rights but never did anything with it. Never did the work to actually broadcast Thursday night football. Don't be that kind of Christian. Y'all feel me? Don't be the kind of Christian who has the rights but doesn't do the work. My word for you this Christmas, you ain't no trust fund baby. Trust fund babies, they got this money inherited from their foreparents. They never do anything. They just coast on their parents' money. That's not how it is with Jesus. You're his child. You've been given the rights to be a child of God. Now go and do the work that the children of God do. In Jesus... You are a co-creator of the coming kingdom of God. You stand in the tradition of Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. You have work to do, so this Christmas, decide to do what God made you to do. Remember your purpose this Christmas. You have a purpose. You're here for a reason. You exist to do something. Do what God made you to do. Not what others tell you you should do. Not what you've been pressured to do. But what you know in your heart God has uniquely called and gifted you to do. Remember your purpose this Christmas. And remember, don't be stressed out about this. Remember that it all hinges on what he has done, not what you do. Let's close and talk about the incarnation here for a second. Section 3 in worship team. You can join me here on stage. The incarnation is lauded in Verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. I was going to clap, but I had to save my present. Remember Jesus, remember that he incarnated in carne, in skin, in meat. Okay? Remember that Jesus became a man for reals. Okay? Remember that he is glorious, and we have seen his glory. Glory means heaviness. There's a weight to Jesus. You ought to take him serious. You ought to feel the weight of the glory of God on you as you join him in partnership to work towards the renewal of all things. Okay, remember that he is glorious. Remember that he is absolutely singular. He is the one and only begotten of the Father. In the words of the great Nicene Creed, one with the Father, homoousion. 
Okay, he's one with the Father. He's absolutely singular. There is no one like him. He is preeminent. He always comes first. It's funny that John the Baptist, his cousin who was older than Jesus, said that Jesus came before him because he was before me. John clearly understood who Jesus really was. He always comes first. You will never do better than second. It's great freedom in that, isn't there? Cease your striving. Let Jesus get the glory. And you just focus on doing what he made you to do because he will always have the preeminence. He is the giver from his fullness of grace upon grace. He is full in and of himself. There is no lack in Jesus. He's got more than enough for what ails you. And from that fullness, he's given you not just grace, but grace upon grace. In the Greek, it's like one of these plural, continuous things like more grace, and then more grace, and then more grace, and then more grace. And if you feel like you need more, he's got it because he is full in and of himself, of his fullness. He's given us grace upon grace. There is enough love in God for you. Why? Because he stands over and above the law. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus Christ do? He makes the Father known or unfolds him. Who is Jesus? I don't think Jesus is the Christmas present. I think Jesus unwraps the Christmas present. 